around. The title of the message tonight is Washing Before Worshiping. Washing Before Worshiping. Let's begin with our text, and then I'll give you the background. Uh, Exodus 30, 17, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord. So they shall wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it is our sincere desire to draw close to you tonight through the study of your word. We affirm and confess that this is your revelation, that though it was penned by men of old, we know that you are the author, that you move them by your Holy Spirit, and that it is divinely inspired. And as such, Lord, it does a work in our lives as believer, uh, a work that we can't fully explain, but we know that it is the process by which you sanctify us and make us more like Christ. And so, Lord, I just pray that we'd make advancements in that area tonight as we study your word this evening together as a body of believers. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. In this text, Moses is on the mountain with God. If you remember, God called Moses to come up on the mountain in chapter 24 after he had given the Ten Commandments to Israel. So Exodus 20, actually they, they get to Mount Sinai, they get preparation in Exodus 19. Exodus 20, God speaks to the entire congregation, the Ten Commandments. The congregation says, don't let God speak to us anymore. God gives some more specific details to Moses in the succeeding chapters. And then in chapter 24, God tells Moses, come up on the mount. In chapter 25, God gives Moses the blueprints and the material list for the tabernacle. And so God has Moses come up on the mountain so that he can tell him what the design of the tabernacle is going to be and the materials that are going to be collected or needed to build it. Then he starts describing the furniture of the tabernacle. If you remember, we started with the Ark of the Covenant really at the heart of the tabernacle. And then we saw the table of showbread and the golden candlestick. Chapter 26 was the curtains, the coverings, the boards, the sockets, the inner and the outer veil. So really it was the structure of the tabernacle. Chapter 27 lays out the courtyard around the tabernacle. Remember it was surrounded by a cloth fence. 75 feet wide, 150 feet long, one gate at the east end, and the brazen altar was inside of the courtyard of the tabernacle. Then in chapters 28 and 29, God gives instruction for the priesthood, uh, and uh, he tells uh, Moses what the garments are to be and the order in which they are supposed to do their services, the sacrifices that they are to sacrifice, the food that they are to eat, and the way that they are to be consecrated for that office. Chapter 30 begins by going back inside the tabernacle to describe the altar of incense. So we had every piece of furniture inside the tabernacle described for us except for the altar of incense. And so chapter 30 takes us 
back inside the tabernacle, describes the altar of incense. And then here in these verses that we read, verses 17 through 21, we're taken back out to the courtyard to the laver of brass. And so just to kind of remind you of where we've been, where Moses is, he is still on the mountain. Uh, this is a 40-day period, so Moses is somewhere within that 40-day window. And though it has taken us weeks and, and months to get through some of these chapters, this really has been a process that's been happening in real time for Moses uh, in, in just a couple of weeks. Uh, the laver that is being described here was a large basin or a cauldron. If you picture in your mind, it's just like a, a large bowl, if you would. And it is, it is on a pedestal, and so there's some sort of pedestal underneath it that is holding it up. And there's a couple of different ideas. If you ever look at renderings, sometimes it is almost like legs that are formed into it to hold it upright. Others show it as almost like a saucer where the water of the laver would be able to be dipped out or overflow into the lower pedestal where the priest would have access to wash it. We're not told in detail. We just know that it is a large cauldron or basin that it is setting on a pedestal, and it is filled with water, and it is located in the courtyard in between the altar, a brazen altar, and the tabernacle. And so if we are entering into the courtyard from the east side, we come through the gate, the first thing we're going to encounter is the brazen altar where they burn the sacrifices. Next, past that, we would encounter the laver that is filled with water. And then we would get to the tabernacle door itself to enter in. And so that's where the laver is located in that courtyard. The word laver is related to our word lavatory, right? That's another word that is for bathroom. Uh, but the, the word lavatory is in reference to a washing place with a washing bowl. And so literally the, the etymology of that word means a washing place with a washing bowl. The laver is used to wash the priest all over before putting on the priestly garments. We saw that in Exodus 29 when he is giving the consecration of the priest that before they were to put on that priestly garb, they were to come to the laver, they were to take an entire bath basically to be washed all over, and then their garments were put on for service. And then it was also used to wash their hands and their feet before approaching the altar or the tabernacle in their daily service. The labor was made out of the same material as the mirrors that women used according to Exodus 38. And so let me just read this to you, Exodus 38, 8. And he made the labor of brass and the foot of it of brass of the looking glasses of the women. And so this material, this brass, was highly reflective when it was polished and it served as a mirror, if you will, for the priest. So the laver, in essence, could reveal any dirt, but it could also wash it clean. And so as with everything that is being described in the tabernacle, it has New Testament spiritual significance. It has an application in the realm for New Testament believers. Interestingly, no measurements are given for the laver. Now, that is interesting because in this text of Scripture, it's been all about measurements, right? 
we've heard about the cubits and how wide the tabernacle is and how long the tabernacle is and how wide the courtyard is and how long the the courtyard is. And we know the height and the width of the table of showbread and the Ark of the Covenant and the golden candlestick. Everything has been given to us in measurements except for the labor. There is no measurements that are given for it. Some theologians suggest that this could signify the measurelessness of God's grace to wash us from our sins. And so if this is a spiritual application and we're looking at that, we notice that there's no measurements and that those uh, priests can come through there repeatedly and that it can constantly be refilled with water, then perhaps it suggests that it is an indication of the measurelessness of God's grace to wash us from our sins. Washing before worshiping is the emphasis of this text of Scripture. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there is a repeated word that is used four times in verses 18, 19, 20, and 21. It is the word wash. You'll find it in 18, 19, 20, and 21. And so automatically it it brings our attention to the fact this is the emphasis. What's the emphasis of this? Well, it's the labor, but what's the point of the labor? It's not just a yard art. It's not just a bird bath. It's not just a fountain in the courtyard to look nice. It is for the purpose of washing the priest. And so washing before worshiping is the emphasis And then as we think about that, that is a principle that we find repeated throughout the entire Bible. Just listen to these verses, if you would, as we're framing our mind around this labor. James 4, 8, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Psalm 19, 12, cleanse thou me from secret faults. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh. And who could forget John 13 on the night before Christ is crucified? He lays aside his, uh, his robe and he puts on the servant's towel and he comes to wash the disciples' feet. And it says, he began to wash the disciples' feet. Peter said unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me, Simon. And Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not to save to wash, but his feet. He's clean everywhere, and you are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore, said he, you are not all clean. And so just a general survey begins to alert us to the fact that there's this idea that we are supposed to wash before we approach to God, that there is this washing that is to take place in order for us to worship. Obviously, the labor is long gone, but washing before worshiping is still required, as we see by the New Testament. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So how do we wash in the New Testament age? I mean, the interpretation of this passage is very simple. They made a big brass bowl and filled it with water, and the priest had to wash in it before they went into the tabernacle or before they went to the altar. They had to wash their hands and their feet. But if this is a principle for us in this New Testament age, then how do we wash? How do we wash before worshiping? How do we wash our hands and cleanse our feet for the service of the Lord? Well, uh, I want to take a few cues from this text and 
flesh them out with other verses of Scripture, but let me give you just three aspects of how we can wash before worshiping. Number one, reflection. Reflection. When we reflect on the Lord in His holiness, it reveals to us our uncleanness. Do you remember in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah has this encounter like he's never had before in chapter 6 where he actually sees God in his holiness. And, and as interesting as that is, I'm going to read that to you, what I want you to pay attention to is his reaction, his response to seeing God clearly. Isaiah 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isn't that an interesting response? When he saw the glory of God, it immediately made him self-conscious of his own uncleanness. Woe is me. I'm told that that in the Hebrew is a, an expression of shock and fear and, and, and just this 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 guttural sound that would come out of you when you are shocked and call off guard by something and when he sees God in his glory he just cries out woe is me for I am undone I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among people of unclean lips this was the effect that seeing the Lord in his holiness had on Isaiah now remember Isaiah is a man of God Isaiah is a man who is trying to live righteously and yet he is appalled at how truly unclean he was. How truly unclean all were. You see, when he saw God clearly, not only was he aware of his uncleanness, but he realized we're all unclean. As a matter of fact, it is Isaiah who said later in Isaiah 64, 6, he says, but we are all as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness is are as filthy rags. And so just as those priests would see their reflection when they came to that highly polished brass that was filled with clear, pure water, there would be a reflective value there, and they would see through that reflection the dirt or the dust that was on them. Interestingly, some of the commentators pointed out that there was no floor in the tabernacle. No floor, was it? Right. There's boards, and they are set in sockets, and then they are covered with the coverings and the curtains, but the floor is dirt. The floor is dust. The floor is sand. And so everything that the priests did, even in their service to the Lord, was going to kick up some dust and dirt. There was going to be some transfer from that to their feet. They also pointed out that there were no chairs in the tabernacle. So their feet were always on the ground, always on the earth. What a picture that is, that although we are priests with God, 
and we have been set apart for his service and we have access to him through Jesus Christ, we are still grounded to this earth. And as we serve him, we collect some dust and dirt along the way. And it's not always obvious to us. You see, when you live in a filthy world, sometimes your standards of cleanliness can be adapted. I remember when we first went to Colorado, we were renting a building. Uh, the group that, that wanted to get a church started had already secured uh, leasing a building, and it was an old church building. But this old church building was being used as a day use center for homeless people in Glenwood Springs. And the homeless people were responsible for cleaning the building. I've got to tell you that when you do not live in a house, your standards of cleanliness go down. That building didn't look clean to most everybody else who came into it because the people who were cleaning it had a different standard of cleanliness. Oh, it was much cleaner than the campsite they were living in or the bridge overpass that they were sleeping under. But to an eye that was used to seeing something clean, you could see the dirt. And you know, you and I live in this filthy world and, and we're surrounded by filthiness and, and it's so filthy that sometimes we don't see the dirt that's collected on us. And we need to reflect. We need to have a reflection from God so that we can see and this is why Jesus came to the earth. He came to reveal our filthiness, did he not? He said in one place that, that they wanted to kill him because he took away their, their cloak that covered their sin. You see, Jesus came and lived in such a way, a sinless life, that it exposed how truly sinful the rest of us are. And Jesus came, part of his purpose in coming was to reveal our filthiness, for us to see that we are not perfect, that we are far from righteous. But he also came to make a way for us to be washed clean. Like that laver, it was reflective so you could see the dirt on your feet and on your hands, but it also was filled with water so you could wash it. Listen to this great text from Titus 3. It says, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We might say dirty. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us, listen, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Oh, it equates being saved with being washed, the washing of regeneration. You and I have the filthiness of sin that is clinging to us, and in order for God to consecrate us, he must wash us like the priest had to be washed. So first, there is reflection, but second, there's repentance. Repentance. Repentance is when we acknowledge and confess our sin to God in a desire to change. The repentance is pictured in the fact that the priests didn't just walk by this pool of water, this reflective basin, and say, oh, I, I'm, I'm okay. But they actually stopped and washed. They stopped and washed. It is the idea that we acknowledge that we are dirty and we 
do something about it. Psalm 51 is David's prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. I want you to listen to the language again in light of what we know about washing. Psalm 51 says, Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Perhaps you've never noticed it in that way before that you read that text and all of a sudden there is this emphasis on repentance and cleansing, repentance and washing, repentance and purging. You see, as New Testament believers, if we are going to wash before worshiping, if we're going to cleanse our hands, if we're going to purify our hearts, then it takes some reflection. We need to stare into the face of God but then it requires some repentance that when we see the reflection and we realize that we have dirty hands and we have dirty hearts that we actually do something about it this principle is repeated by the apostle John in the New Testament he says in 1 John 1 9 if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I remind you that repentance is cleansing? It, it is cleansing. It, it was interesting to me as a father that when my children would do something wrong and they were covering it up, there was evidence, there was attitude issues, there, there was aggression there was frustration but when they came clean when they confessed it sometimes after coercion when they confessed it there was this relief there was this cleansing that took place that that they knew that they had done wrong but now they have done what was required to make it right and this idea is that you and I who are saved are going to collect some dirt along the way. It's a dirty world. And so sometimes it's going to get on us. But it bears on us, and it weighs on us, and it will weigh on us until we confess it and repent of it. And when we confess and repent of it, God is faithful to wash it away. But I, I, I tell you this, repentance is cleansing not just before salvation. We know that that's the message that came with John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus began his ministry by telling us to repent. And that message is carried throughout the New Testament that there must be this repentance and faith, like two sides of the same coin. I believe that repentance is a prerequisite of salvation. But it's not just for salvation. It's also after you're saved. Believers need to repent. Like Jesus washing just the hands and the feet of his disciples, uh, or uh, like, the, the, like the Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Remember that conversation he had with Peter? Peter says, no, 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 you're not going to wash me. Jesus said, if, you don't, if I don't wash you, I, you have no part with me. Don't, don't just wash my feet. Wash my hands. Wash my head. Wash me all over. Jesus said, you don't need that. 
you just need your feet washed. You're already a disciple. You're already a believer. But you need to have your feet washed. The priests had already been consecrated. They had already been washed all over. They are robed in the garment. They weren't required to wash all over every time they passed that labor. They weren't required to wash from head to foot every time they approached the tabernacle or every time they went to the altar to make a sacrifice. But they were required to wash their hands and their feet every time. And I think that there's a spiritual lesson for you and I as believers that repentance isn't just part of us getting saved, but repentance is part of the Christian life. That when we realize that we have sinned against God in the least amount, that we are quick to confess and fast to repent, and God is faithful to cleanse us and to wash us so that we are ready for service. And then... The third aspect is revelation. Revelation is another term for the Word of God, and it is a cleansing agent. The Word of God is a cleansing agent. Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it. Well, how is he going to sanctify and cleanse the church? With the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Think about the context of that verse. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, When he calls it the church, it's already his bride. That means that those people have repented and believed and that they are saved and they're in this covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, but that he is washing them with the water of his word to make them holy, to remove every spot and blemish and wrinkle. Interestingly, washing the word that is used there is the translation of the Greek word for labor. Isn't that cool? The same word that's used in Exodus 30, labor, has its equivalent in the Greek and it's translated washing in Ephesians 5 and Titus 3, washing of regeneration. The lavering, if you will, of the word. Obviously, the water and the labor was sufficient to wash away any dirt that was on the priest that was sufficient that was God's prescription fill the basin with water not with Clorox not with uh, not not with detergent water fill it with water wash with the water it was sufficient it was sufficient for the dirt that would collect to you in the service of the tabernacle it's sufficient to wash it away likewise the word of God is sufficient It's sufficient to wash away our sinful behavior. There is an attack on the Word of God. There's been an attack on the Word of God for a long time. But one of the attacks on the Word of God right now is that it is not sufficient for everything that we need. And so you have churches that are looking for extra-biblical practices and philosophies. Well, we, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to grow, if we're going to make disciples, if we're going to, you know, give more people, then, then it can't just be the old, it can't, just can't be the Bible all the time. I mean, we, we've got to have this program, we've got to that program, we've got to do this, got to do that. And not that there are things wrong with programs, but if we are doing that 
in an idea that the word is not sufficient, then we're making a huge mistake. The word of God is sufficient to bring you to salvation. The word of God is sufficient to sanctify you. The word of God is sufficient to convict you. The word of God is sufficient to make you more like Christ. The word of God is sufficient to wash away your sinful habits and behaviors. And so if there is, if there is dirt that seems to collect to us quite regularly, we need to bathe in the word on a regular basis. We need to be in the book because it is sufficient to wash away our sinful behaviors. But you might ask, well, how sufficient is it? Like, really? I know that we use more than water to get clean nowadays, right? We use some soap, that sort of thing. Can I tell you something that you may not know? This is, I, I found this out not long ago. It's really interesting to me. Did you know that toothpaste is a hoax? Now, I know I'm from West Virginia, and we've got an aversion to, to all that. But literally, you don't have to have toothpaste. All you need is your toothbrush. And you know, if you brush your teeth every day, you will have great dental hygiene. Now, I say at the risk of knowing that we've got an oral surgeon in the room. But I'm telling you, the toothpaste, if you look it up, if you research it, literally, you don't have to have toothpaste to have clean teeth. You, you can get by without it. And so that's a sidebar. Uh, I'm not sure why I mentioned that other than it, it, it stuck with me. Uh, we don't, let's not confess any sins of uh, hygiene. How sufficient is the word of God to wash away my sins? Like, do I need to mix something in with this to make it more sufficient? Or is it sufficient to really, really change my sinful behavior? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Would you turn there? Uh, I'd like for you to see this. This is a passage of scripture that, uh, that I love, that I've used often before, talking about the change that takes place in us. But there's one part of it that I always kind of rushed over before to get to the other part. And that is until I came to this text of scripture where I saw that this washing is so important. And I discovered how powerful God's word is and what it can actually wash away from my life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, some translations say homosexual, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, we would say alcoholics, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But something happened. But ye are what? You say it. Washed. But you're washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do you understand that that means that Christ is able to wash away your sins? He's able to wash away the sin of addiction. He's able to wash away uh, the sin of adultery and its tendency. He is able to wash away the sin of homosexuality. They are trying, people are trying to make room for homosexuality in the church today. Do you realize that? And here's the line. Well, as long as you don't act upon it. 
Like, you may have those same-sex attractions, but as long as you don't act upon it, you can, you can be a celibate homosexual. I'm pretty sure that the Bible says that, that, that it didn't just wash away uh, the action. It washed it away completely. God is able to do that. And so, just like an adulterer needs to repent of their sin and be saved and stop their adultery, a homosexual needs to repent of their sin and get saved and stop their homosexuality. You see, that's how powerful the washing of regeneration is. That's how powerful the washing of the water of the Word is. That it can actually take these proclivities that people say that they can't hardly stop, that they can't get away from, and God can wash it away. You know what the good news is? You don't have to live dirty. You don't have to live dirty. Christ can wash away all your sins. Even the stain of guilt doesn't have to stick on us. Sometimes people struggle with that. They repent of their sin. They get saved. They fighting their temptations and they're trying to live a good life but then they feel like they've got a scarlet letter on their chest that they've got this stain of sin that sticks with them everywhere that they go and that somehow they're like a second class Christian no my friends Christ is able to wash away even the stain of guilt and so I ask you are you washed and are you washing Oh, we need to be washed in the blood. We need to be saved. But we also need to be washing in the Word, allowing the Word of God to wash away those sinful temptations and those sinful practices that seem to reoccur in our lives. Would you bow with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much for these wonderful illustrations that you fleshed out in the Old Testament that were practical and useful in that time. But now they give us an illustration of what you came to do in our lives through your work on the cross and through the revelation of your word. Father, I pray that we would wash before worshiping. I pray that we would live clean lives. Lord, I pray that it would be the desire of our heart to live in purity. Lord, not, not living with the impurities of sin and temptations and indulgences. But Lord, that we would wash in your word every day and that our desire would to be pure every moment, every day. So that we can be of service to you and so that we can be a witness to the world around us. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the cleansing power of Christ and his word. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand with me and let's sing number 555, I Love You, Lord. <laughs>